Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Subway, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And joining me today is a man who needs no introduction in the world of Canadian broadcasting. It is Mr. Alan Cross. Alan, welcome back to the show. I'm very happy to be here. So, uh, something new since we spoke last. You are now the voice of legendary Toronto rock radio station, Q107. Yes, more work equals more security as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, no, it's it's a voice work gig. I am the imaging voice, yep. which is the voice that you hear between the songs saying the name of the radio station and the slogan of the station. Uh, I've done that before for a bunch of other radio stations, but uh, now my duties have grown to include Kim 107. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, how's it going with uh, the ongoing history of new music? Well, uh, I should be at home right now writing episode number 836 <laughs> or 37. Wow. Um, so I maintain from September to May yeah. a pace where I do one a week. Okay. And that works out to about 33 or 34, depending on how the calendar falls. So that is a continuing, I don't want to call it a grind, but it's certainly something that keeps me very busy and very focused throughout the winter months. So um, I'm working right now on the episode for December the 2nd. Today, as we record this, is October 24th. Mm-hmm. So I try to stay five or six weeks ahead. ahead. Okay. Um, and I have one, two, three, four more to go before the Christmas break. Then I give myself two weeks, and I'm back at it in January. Yeah, good. So how do, they, how do you come up with your content? How do they come together? I don't really know. The topics are generated on sort of an ad hoc basis if something comes to mind Mm -hmm. i'll think oh that's cool that makes it interesting for me and the way i look at things is that since i do this on a regular basis and i've been doing it for so long i got a lot of baggage i have a lot of biases and prejudices and preferences that just happen to that, that just cling to you as you get older sure so it's very hard for me to get excited about something. Uh, the way I kind of look at it is, if you're a heroin addict, when you started, it took just a little hit to get you high. Yeah. But by the time you're a hardcore addict, you really need to take a lot of heroin to get high. <laughs> so for me to get excited about something in music, it takes a lot to get me really excited because I've seen so much and done so much and experienced so much. That's not a brag. That's just a uh, an assessment of how long I've been doing this. Yeah. So my theory is that if I can find something that excites me, mm-hmm. that makes me go, wow, that's cool, yep. how will that affect somebody who has a life? Okay. If I can, you know, if I'm excited about something, then that is a really high bar. And hopefully it translates into something super-duper incredible exciting for somebody who doesn't do this for a living. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. So, you know, in hearing you say that, you got me thinking about the future of rock, Mm. you know. And I was thinking, you you can always go back and find interesting things in the history of rock. But going forward, you know, I often think about the fact that, or the question that, you know, will music matter as much to people in, in future generations? I think music will always matter. It's just going to be the degree to which it matters. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of ways that we can look at this. First of all, there is the cycle of life. Right. Uh, music is most important to you between the time you enter high school and the time you get your first real job out of college or university or at least by your mid-20s. You've got all the time in the world to devote to music. 
you use music as a way to project your identity on the world. Mm-hmm. You have uh, are very passionate about music because that is, you know, maybe a driving force in your social life, in your artistic life, in your political life. But by the time you get into your middle twenties, life starts to get in in intrude. You know, you get married, you get a job, you have a mortgage, you get yeah. kids. Yeah. And you just don't have the time, money, and energy to spend on music as you did when you were in that 10-year, 12-year sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that as you grow older, you become less and less interested in what's new. Right. This is totally normal, and it is not a criticism at all. And then somewhere around 41, 42, you have a bit of a crisis. Mm-hmm. And this has been studied. You have a bit of a crisis where all of a sudden you think, I'm not old. I'm just as hip as the kids today. So you go into a period where you are, uh, you try to throw yourself into music. Yeah. Again, this, with the same level of intensity and passion as you once did. Yeah. And that lasts for however long the energy lasts. Yeah. But what most people will do is always default back to the music of their youth because they're comfortable with that music. They know it well. They, it brings up great memories it's something that they find comfort in. Mm-hmm. And then they also start thinking, well, you know, music isn't as good today as it was back when I was young. Right. What's wrong with today's kids? Yeah. Again, cycle of life, totally normal. Yeah, There are exceptions to this rule. There are people who are intensely devoted to music discovery and new and cool throughout their entire lives. But for in general, the general population, this is, this is what happens. So let's look at, at this in the context of rock. Uh, there are people who will tell you that rock died at Altamont in 1969. Right. There are people who will tell you that rock died with disco in 1978. There are people who will tell you that rock died somewhere in the early 80s when synthesizers came along and people like Huey Lewis in the News and Whitney Houston started taking over. There are people that will tell you that rock died when Kurt died. There will people. There will be people that tell you that rock died somewhere around 1997, 1998, when electronic music started to take over, mm-hmm. and then there were people that will tell you that rock died somewhere in the early 2000s when pop took over and EDM became a big thing. Um, last time I checked, though, rock is is still here in the United States. It has been supplanted as the number one driver of culture by hip hop. January fourth, but. The rest of the world is still a pop and rock uh, planet. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at sales in Canada, and if you look at penetration of music into the Canadian consumer base, rock is still number one. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop and R&B are making inroads, but rock we are still a rock nation in Canada. And now there seems to be some kind of renaissance going on. And this was predicted by me and a bunch of other people um, three, maybe years ago, uh, rock is all or music is always downstream from what's ever happening in cult- in in society in right. culture, and uh, the United States and the world has been in flux since 2016 with Donald Trump, with Brexit, with problems with the European Union, with the immigration crisis, with the rise of Russia, with China um, flexing its its muscles with me too with time's up with uh, black lives matter 
you know, racism and immigration and all these things. There's a lot of potter kegs around the world right now. And that's usually when music, shortly after all this seeps into the public consciousness, that's when music begins to reflect this. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of negativity, a lot of aggression, a lot of anger, a lot of fear. And that is not very conducive to pop music. Right. It just doesn't work. And if you look at the pop charts, you'll see a couple of things. That pop music is moving more and more, and this is, the again, a general, uh, a general characterization. Pop music is more and more in a minor key, mm -hmm. and the tempo has slowed down. And if you look at some other avenues of pop, there's a lot of stuff like, oh, God, I'm so stressed out. 21 pilots i wish we were young you know the revivalists yeah. uh they're all this woe is me kind of i'm very scared about what's going on and that has transformed into something that resembles 70s rock yeah things are getting harder and tougher and guitars are coming back we look at the sheepdogs we look at monster truck we look at greta van, greta van fleet, fleet. Yep and a bunch of other bands. These are young kids who are, to us old people, just ripping off Led Zeppelin or whatever, but they're not. They are have discovered they those sorts of sounds on their own, and it feels good. Led Zeppelin, when they were around, was absolutely crucified for ripping off the blues artists of the mm -hmm. 30s and 40s. Right. And they were, you know, it was, it was a... You know, so 1972, they're ripping off something from 1940, let's say. Yeah. So that's a difference of 32 years. So they were ripping off music that was 32 years old. Yeah. Greta Van Fleet comes out in 2017, let's say, and people accuse them of ripping off Led Zeppelin, who were formed 50 years ago. Yeah. So even though this music has been in popular culture for all of those 50 years, you still have to understand that these kids their upper teens and lower 20s, you have to understand that they are as removed from the Led Zeppelin era, actually more removed from the Led Zeppelin era than we were in the Led Zeppelin era from the original blues from whence a lot of Zeppelin stuff came. That's a good point. So let's just keep that in mind and understand that a lot of these younger bands, a lot of women, I mean, more than half of women in the UK who are taking music lessons are picking up the guitar. Yeah. Uh, after seeing guitar sales start to drift down over a decade, there are signs that they're picking up. Ah. And if you listen to some of the music, the new music that's coming out, a lot of it is guitar, bass, and drums. It yeah. will never be as big as it was, especially in the United States. But it's not dead, and it's just waiting for the next generation to figure out that it's a lot of fun to play it. Yeah. It's cyclical. It is. Yeah, everything's cyclical. You, know, you can look back on points where rock was kind of... Uh, rock's died so many times. It's been yeah. written off so many times. I remember very vividly... I mean, the the, the Who, in, it, you know, in the late 70s, has a song called Rock, uh, Long Live Rock, and they talk mm -hmm. about being rock dead. Yeah. Like, because punk rock was supposed to be the death of rock. That's the right. synthesizer was supposed to be the death of rock. Um the the Grunge was... Grunge, well, I'll tell you what, was uh, the, the when... when uh, hair metal had reached its zenith and was all about power ballads. I mean, that was the death of rock. Yes. Uh, when, in the late 1990s, when hip-hop was really, you know, especially gangster stuff, was was taking over, mm -hmm. and turntables were outselling guitars because people wanted to be DJs while rock was dead. Yeah. 
it's never worked out. It's fine. It just comes and goes. Yeah. Okay, shall we get into your songs? Go. Starting with a great rock song, U2, Vertigo. Yeah, I, I remember hearing this for the very first time in the parking lot of a golf course. Uh, the guy from Universal Music said, okay, I've got the new U2 album. I want you to have a listen to it. Yeah. And when I first heard it, I thought, I don't know if I like this. Yeah. This is a bit hard. I don't get it. But it was one of those growers with me. After about the sixth or seventh listen, I thought, okay, you know what? This is this is really good. Yeah. And now, uh, Vertigo is is frankly one of my favorite U2 songs of all time. Oh, really? It is. That's a bold statement. Yeah, especially since hearing it on his car stereo that one afternoon, yeah. I thought, they've blown it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, it's become a staple. Actually, the first time I heard it, I liked the energy of it, and I was actually quite surprised that it was as heavy as it was. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't anything that we... I mean, remember, we're coming off songs like Beautiful Day. Right. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff that they were playing when they went on tour after 9-11. That's right. Uh, and, of course, the All That You Can't Leave Behind album came after the pop record, which wasn't a favorite of a lot of U2 fans. Right. So I thought, oh, God, you know, are they, they trying to start an album off like they did with Octung Baby and, and Zoo Station? You know, this really hard and heavy stuff. This isn't where things are. But mm-hmm. um, I was wrong. <laughs> Very wrong. It's a great song. I was in a band that used to play this song a lot, and I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it's a good three minutes, 14 seconds. It's just a lot of fun. Exactly. Okay, next tune, Nine Inch Nails, Head Like a Hole. I first saw Nine Inch Nails by accident. Okay. Um, they were the opening act for Peter Murphy when uh-huh. he went on his tour for the Deep album. This would be 1989. Okay. And we had all gone out to see Peter Murphy because, you know, Bauhaus and Bela Lugosi's Dead and this album was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got our set times wrong. We showed up and, uh, oh, he's not on for another hour. Oh, we have an opening act. Okay, whatever. And uh, the opening act happened to be Nine Inch Nails. Wow. And at first it was just a cacophonous noise. Yeah. But then... It started to coalesce. I mean, it took maybe it took a while for the sound guy to get his act together, but it began to coalesce. And I remember at one point in the set, the band launches into a cover of Queen's Get Down, Make Love. Oh, wow, really? And I remember everybody, this is the old RPM club in Toronto, yep. everybody stopped and turned and their mouths fell open yeah. at that song. For sure. And at, from that point on, everybody paid attention. And I think Head Like a Hole was close to the end of that set. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the single came out, the 12-inch single came out first, then uh, the Pretty Hate Machine album came out, and uh, then all the remixes of, of it came out. And if you listen to any of this stuff, anything from Pretty Hate Machine, uh, that it is so well done that it could be released today and mm-hmm it would be a, a perfectly fine contemporary album. Yeah, agree. Okay, next tune, Pixies, UMass. I think this is 91, is that right? Uh, I think so. Um, this is towards the end of the Pixies' first incarnation. It's uh, one of those songs with a lot of bad words in it, or a couple of bad words <laughs> in it. And uh, when I was doing nightclubs, a DJing clubs yep. in the early part of the 90s, there were no real rules because indie rock and alternative music was was really taking over. Okay. And 
their the whole culture was was starting to coalesce in a different kind of way with all these bands that were coming out of these obscure bands. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them, you know, were really hard and harsh and heavy. And uh, I chanced upon UMass simply because of the riff that starts it off. That's great. And uh, the breakdown with the cowbell in the center. Yeah. <laughs> and I uh, started playing that as part of the the dance nights, the alternative dance nights that we were doing. Yeah. And when they get to the, the, the bad parts, uh, it was cool to watch everybody on the dance floor scream those words out, <laughs> men and women, as loud as they could. Yeah. And it's always been a favorite of mine. Yeah. Kind of like Moni Moni. Kind of like Moni Moni. Yeah. Kind of like, never quite had the iconic appeal of Moni Moni, but uh, those who knew the Pixies know UMass. Yeah, definitely. All right, next, the Beatles. Hey, Jude. I've seen Paul McCartney I don't know how many times, and each time he plays Hey, Jude, I swear to God that the song has healing properties. People throw down their crutches and rise out of their wheelchairs. (laughs) It is a song that was recorded in 1968 at Trident Studios. They did not do this one at Abbey Road. They did it at Trident in Soho of in, in London. And Paul McCartney's playing a Benheim grand piano. Mm-hmm. The thing is more than 100 years old. That's the same piano that we hear Queen play on songs like Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh-huh. It's songs that, uh, if, if you go to David Bowie's early catalog from, you know, Hunky Dory forward, that's the piano that you hear Mike Garson and, and uh, Rick Wakeman play. Oh, wow. If you go to Elton John, his uh, early albums that were recorded at Triton, that's the same piano. That's weed. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Paul McCartney had a really good idea about how this song needed to be done. Okay. It was uh, advice to Julian Lennon. That's right. John's kid. And uh, it's there's just so many stories about this song. They they brought in some classical musicians to play the brass parts, the orchestral parts. One of them walked out because he wasn't going to be on a bloody Beatles song. Uh, <laughs> the coda, of the sing the singing out of, of the na 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 nas, that's longer than the actual main part of the song. It's like five minutes, isn't it? It goes on for it's yes, it goes on longer than the than the verses uh, yeah. and chorus of the song. Um, there was. Uh, Concerned that they would never be able to fit that on a seven-inch single because it's so long; it's seven minutes and change. Uh, so EMI had to come up with a new way of cutting the master. Mm. So the latter parts of the song, which required tighter grooves towards the center of the forty-five, had the same volume as mm. the outer grooves. And one of the great quotes comes from John Lennon. You know, George Martin goes up to him and says, "You know." I know this feels good, but you know it's over seven minutes long. No radio station's going to play it. And John Lennon looks at him and says, "They will if it's us." It's very true, and they did. And they did a yeah. lot. Yeah, there's a couple some great stories about this. When 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 Ringo when Ringo Starr <laughs> when Paul McCartney starts the the song, Ringo Starr is not in the room. He's out at the bathroom. He's, he's <laughs> and and Paul doesn't know it, and he creeps in just in time to start playing the drums. Really? So that early part, Ringo is absent from the studio. <laughs> and there is a point where John Lennon drops the F-bomb okay. in the song. You have to really listen for it. It's in the background when somebody hits a bum note. Ah. And they just let it slide. Okay. And then when Paul McCartney 
reaches up into that high note just before they go into the na-na-na-na parts. Yeah. That's the highest note Paul McCartney hits on a Beatles record. Really? Yes. Wow. See, this is just one song from the Beatles. This is why I yeah, love the like band. Three interesting there's facts right there's there. There's so many things to talk about. Yeah. Let's go back and listen to it now. Where's that F-bomb? Is it towards the end? Uh, 256, 252. I read something about that before. Yeah. You could, it's barely audible. Yeah, and you really have to listen for it. Yeah. Would that have been around the same time where they had to start over? After, you know, because they, when the Beatles were recording, they literally had like four or five tracks. Only, they had four right? tracks. In this particular case, what they would do is they would record uh, four tracks, bounce those tracks down to one. Right. Record another three tracks, bounce that down to one. Yeah. Record two tracks, bounce that down to one, and then finish with the remaining open track. Yeah. So there wasn't so much pressure. Yes. It was an amazing amount of technical expertise and that was all people like George Martin and Jeff Emmerich that did that right yeah and Ken Scott yeah next up sir you have Pink Floyd and Metal this is the record right no this is uh, well it's the it's oh I'm sorry I got this wrong I meant to say one of these days ah from Metal from Metal that's what I meant to write Um, again a big goofy headphone instrumental yes which begins with the wind and then Roger Waters comes in with um, a bass that's run through uh, some kind of echo machine Mm. that doubles up on and triples up on everything that he's playing. And it's really quite simple because there's only a couple of chords, but it's the production that makes this so cool and the atmosphere that makes it so cool. And uh, if you listen to it in the dark on headphones as many people did in 1971, yeah. perhaps under the uh, the influence of various substances, it's a pretty cool record. It really is. And then it comes to the, the big breakdown where I think it's Nick Mason who says, uh, in a slowed-down voice, one of these days I'm going to cut, cut you, you into, into little, little pieces. pieces. Yes. And then it breaks in for the... Uh, uh, for the big finale. Yeah. Great song. I've seen him do it live a bunch of times. Roger Waters still does it live. And it's uh, it's still a pretty trippy, freaky instrumental. Yeah. It's funny that you say that about the headphones. I was just talking to Rob Proust. We did a Halloween episode, actually. And he said, you know, we're talking about scary songs. And I used to listen to Dark Side of the Moon, I think the album that came out right after mm. Metal, in bed with headphones on in the dark. Probably a giant piece of a uh, giant pair of cos headphones <laughs> that weighed about five pounds <laughs> yeah, yeah. and that hurt your head after a while <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> that's so funny but it was a great listening experience right yeah yeah <laughs> all right next is uh 2112 by rush okay um if there was one piece of music that made me want to play the drums it's this one yeah uh rush was in a do or die situation. This was their third record. It's like seven, Sorry. six. No, um, Rush. This was their fourth record. Okay. So this is uh, they had the the first one with the uh, self titled record. Mm-hmm. Then there was Fly by Night. Then it was Caress of Steel, and then there was this one. And Caress of Steel had not done very well, and they were really in danger of being dropped by their record label. Yeah. And Neil Peart had picked up an Ayn Rand book called. The, um, the anthem, okay. which tells the story of a guy who discovers a forbidden musical instrument and basically uses it to overthrow society. Mm. And that becomes the basis of side one of 2112 with the overture 
and all the pieces that follow it. And that was, for me, my real introduction into progressive rock. And again, Rush was very much a prog rock band at the time. And uh, I, I was always a sucker for an instrumental because it forced you to be more creative, or so I thought, as a musician to carry somebody through four, five, six, seven, ten minutes or longer mm. with no words, mm-hmm. with no lyrics. And 2112 did it for me. I bought it on cassette. And uh, <laughs> it was something that was in my car, which, uh, well, that would have been my mom's 1973 green Pinto yeah. with the Roadstar Underdash cassette deck, <laughs> uh, which I believe pumped out a whopping five watts per side. <laughs> wow. But that's what I listened to. And then it graduated into my um, new car, which was a 1979, no, yes, a 1979 um, Pontiac Firebird with a 236, no, sorry, 237 cubic inch engine putting out a whopping 98 horsepower. Mm. But I had the tunes. (laughs) And 2112, uh, there was a lot of air drumming on that, that steering wheel. Yeah, yeah. Do you still have the cassette? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, it's in the crawl space under my studio at home. Very good. Hang on to it. I've still got all mine, too. Okay, your last tune, my friend, Pearl Jam and Alive. This is one of my favorite songs ever, I think. I go through Pearl Jam phases every once in a while where I realize what a good band they were, Mm -hmm. especially that first album. Now, when that record first came out, nobody knew what to do with it because it was, you know... In, in contrast with the Pixies and Nirvana and some of the other stuff that was coming out in 1990 and 91, Chili Peppers, Ministry, yep. Rage Against the Machine. Well, that was a little bit later. But uh, what do we do with Pearl Jam? Because the original thinking was, and this was this also befell Alice in Chains, yes. was these guys are just a mainstream rock band. Yeah. We don't, we, we're an alternative station. We are, we're alternative fans. We don't play this crap. But that changed, obviously, over the next couple of years, and Pearl Jam became one of the leaders of the grunge movement. They are basically one of the Holy Trinity, along with Nirvana and Soundgarden. Mm -hmm. And the production on that rec on, on, on Alive is absolutely astounding. I was invited to Panasonic headquarters, Mm -hmm. where I got to hear a high resolution version of Alive through an $80,000 sound system. Wow. And even though I'd heard the song a thousand times, 5,000 times, I was able to hear things in the mix that I'd never heard before. I mean, there's there's all kinds of acoustic guitar all over the song. Really? Yeah, but it's buried in the mix. And you really have to listen for it on a high-resolution recording before it comes through. Wow. Uh, the other thing I appreciate was uh, was Dave Krusen, who was the drummer at the time. And he was only Pearl Jam's drummer for that one record. Mm-hmm. And he was really good. Yeah. And everything just came together so well with that entire 10 album uh, that it remains one of the greatest debut records of all time. And the performance and the production of Alive, especially, again, to when the band ramps up after the verses are done. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, you just want, every time you listen to it, you just want to thrust your hands, your fist in the air. And, oh, yeah. And, and it's such a positive song, too. It is. 
So um, I often use it. I, I ended up buying uh, a very expensive stereo for my studio downstairs just so I could listen to songs like this yeah. in high-resolution audio. Yeah. And uh, I often, when I bring people down to listen to it, I often put on a live and say, okay, I'm going to turn this up, and I want you to listen for all the things that are unfamiliar. Wow. Chances are you've never heard them because you've never heard them on a stereo like this. But trust me when I tell you that you will never hear the song the same way again. Wow. And what medium are you are you using a CD? Is it through? It is a digital file okay. uh, of uh, 96192. Okay. So it's, it's not a CD. It's about... Well, it's twice as good as a CD in yeah. terms of resolution. Okay. Yeah, this is, as I said, one of my favorite songs. I remember when this came out, it was a bit almost illusory because they looked like grunge people, but they didn't sound like grunge people to me. No, they were like Van Halen. Yeah, right? Oh, or or so we thought. But they, well, we again, we were wrong. Yeah, you know, and, and McCready, I think, took a lot of stick for that solo at the end, which he admitted that was just a kiss knockoff. It was, you know, that she solo on uh, Dress to Kill, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And he just kept playing those Frelly licks over and over again in, the, in that outro for mm-hmm. the solo, right? He took a lot of shit for that. He did, but but it worked. Yeah, it totally worked. And, you know, how, it's only people that were into kiss, you know, back in those days that would have picked up on that. Yeah. If you're if you were a 17 or 18 year old kid looking for something to help you transcend your horribleness of your teenage years, <laughs> you didn't care. You didn't know about Kiss because Kiss, again, you know, we, we got to put it back into context. 1991, all those bands: Van Halen, The Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Leonard Skinner, Elton John. They were dinosaurs that were poison. Yes. You did not listen to them. You listen to Kiss. You listen to Judas Priest. You listen to Black Sabbath. Are you crazy? Mm-hmm. Those are ban- they're dead, man. You need to listen to what's new. Yes. Turns out that a lot of the stuff that was new at the time was Black Sabbath and Kiss and Judas Priest and Neil Young reimagined. Yeah, exactly. Which brings us back to our conversation on rock and roll in the beginning, where what we're seeing now is very much what we saw with the grunge era, reimagining older music for a new generation. It's got a new fresh coat of paint on it, and it sounds really, really good. Cyclical. And testament to the fact that rock will be around for quite a long time. I think so. Yeah. It has been great speaking with you, Alan. Thank you very much for coming in. I always love having you. You're very welcome. Come back anytime. Okay. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Alan Cross. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. 